1: Live from the NASDAQ market side overlook in New York City Times Square. This is Fast Money. I'm Carl Quintanilla in for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a sleeper stock ready to rise and shine. Kathy Woods making a bet on this name. But should you? We'll tell you what it is and how to play it. A Bitcoin breakdown. The crypto on pace for four straight weekly losses. A sign of more trouble or is it time to buy in? And the new kid on the block, Berkshire-backed Brazilian Bank comes to market at a tough time for fintech. But one of our traders is bullish. We'll find out why. But we will start with the countdown of the most important inflation report of the year, tomorrow's CPI, and what it could signal to the Fed. Last month's read was a three-decade high. Economists expect an even higher number this time around. Could this spook the markets having their best week since February? Guy, what do you think?
2: Well, look, before we even get into it, you can't just start that way. So if we make it to January, <laughs> it's 15 years. That means we've done 3,300 shows over that time. And this is probably, what, the third time you've hosted? I mean, you are Carl Keaton and E. I mean, this is like yep. you're on the Parthenon of CNBC. So I, I, for me, I know I can speak for the others. I'm just, like, flabbergasted. Okay, what was your question? Right. Oh, can <laughs> the market be spooked? Absolutely. <laughs> And if this thing has a seven handle, and that's not out of the realm of possibility, I think the market absolutely gets spooked. The only thing I think the market has going for it, Carl, is the fact that the Fed's now in front of this, not behind it. Obviously, they've taken the word transitory out of the lexicon. So I think in terms of that, they're prepared. I don't know what to expect. And quite frankly, and Karen can speak to this, even if I knew the number, I wouldn't know what to do
1: in the market. Yeah, Karen, that is true. I mean, is there a different playbook for what if if
3: it's hot and what if it's cold? I'm not sure what to do as Guy said. I, you know it's if it's really hot, I think that we know that the Fed is going to increase the pace of the taper that's baked in. But if it's not so hot, are they already committed? Do they increase the, the, the taper anyway? I think they do, right They've made a big they've made their position known, they've primed the market for it. I think they should. But I think a really hot number is more likely and I think that spooks the market. I just think those high flyer stocks, those multiples can't continue if rates are higher. So that's sort of how I'm positioned. I I think that even though inflation might be transitory is not the word I want to use, might go down a little <laughs> bit, it's still very, very high. So I'm positioned for lower, lower PE stocks. That's where I want to be. Yeah. You know, Tim, there had been some talk that
1: CPI would reflect uh, oil coming down, maybe some shipping rates coming down. And then the president comes out this morning and says this print might not reflect any of that. And that's really where stocks started to run into trouble today.
4: Yeah. Uh, by the way, welcome, Carl. I agree with Guy. It's great having you. And, and the, the point on CPI for tomorrow, though, this is so well flagged. Uh, and I think we also do understand, even people that haven't spent a lot of time under, understanding the differences between core and, and the headline print. I actually do think that wholesale retail gas prices uh, are gonna fall off dramatically in the next couple months. I do actually think that some of the food prices which are up, gonna probably show a half percent rise in November are, are things that are unsustainable. So uh, while I'm not gonna use the, the T word, um, I, I will say that I, I do think that the market now has almost been uh, I wouldn't say inured, but I, I think we, we expect inflation is with us. Uh, I agree with the traders that think that CPI inflation is a concern for the market. But the bigger concern really has been around growth. So um, I, I think it's, it's more an impact, really, of what we think the read is going to be for the Fed for next week. And, and as much as we want to handicap that, I, I think the Fed, um, the, the 180 turn in the Fed posture in the last three weeks is something that we don't necessarily know what we're going to get coming out of that Fed meeting.
1: Yeah. Dan, you know, one narrative making the rounds today was uh, the CPI print, you know, really isn't where the risk is. It's more about the market getting comfortable with the withdrawal of accommodation in general for the next several years, regardless of what tomorrow's number brings.
5: Yeah and really you know that's something I guess if you've traded over the last 13 years it was something that was always on the tip of your tongue in the years following the global financial crisis there was a lot of volatility this time around I think we all know what did Fed Chair Powell do in December of 2018 when the stock market started to get rallied at the pace of the rate increases. He went dovish, right? And the stock market soared. So I wouldn't expect that playbook to be the same exact one right now. I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't had a whole heck of a lot of volatility, because I think we do know that if the stock market goes down too fast, too quickly because of the taper or expectations for rate hikes, the Fed will change their tune a little bit. And I'll just say this, if you're thinking about how to trade this, Okay, into the CPI number. I'm with Tim, I, I think like all this stuff's gonna revert. I think that, you know, in three to six months we're gonna be talking about, we will say, oh, that was transitory. It just mattered whether you meant three months, six months or nine months, it doesn't really matter. I don't believe that this this pandemic changed the way our economy is gonna work for good um, going forward. The last thing I'll say about the stock market, look at what happened today. Why did Microsoft, why did Apple, why did Alphabet, why did they trade so well relative to all these high growth names? The NASDAQ 100 is down 1.7 percent. Most of those names I just mentioned were down, I don't know, less than a half a percent or so. So you're seeing the continued crowding into those names that should be, I guess, somewhat, um, you know, should, should be insulated from you know, runaway inflation, I guess. So um, to me, I find that dangerous, though, because I think the crowding in those names and the absolute devastation in so many other parts of the market is not a great setup.
1: Interesting. So, uh, Guy, does that mean that essentially the Fed put, as we've known it for years, is dead, is just too costly for the Fed to continue, and we're going to continue to crowd into large mega-cap safety names that will sort of cloak the underlying pain in a lot of the uh, stock market?
2: It certainly feels that way, but just let me push back on Dan for a second. He mentioned October, November, December 2018, much different time. Then the Federal Reserve, I think, was getting sort of browbeat by the administration And the report card for that administration was the stock market. So when the stock market went down 19.9% in about two months, I think they got forced into doing something. It's much different now. And Karen brought this up last week. This seems to be an administration that's not as much focused on the stock market. Right now, the bullseye they have on their back is inflation. And the first comments Powell made after his nomination was about (laughs) inflation, which I find fascinating. I think they're more focused on that. Which could really hurt the market in the long run. So to answer your question, yeah, I don't think that Fed put is in place as much as people would like to think that it is.
1: Yeah, Karen, did uh, what? What? I missed that comment, but you you made note of the fact that it was his first. It was his first comment out of the box.
3: Yes, and it was quite clear. I mean, he couldn't have been more clear. <laughs> this is what we're going to do. And then he did it again the next day. And then Loretta Mester came out, and then there was another uh, president of the Fed that came out and said the exact same thing. So. I don't know it seemed to me rather interesting or coincidental, I guess, on the timing. But let me just add to say one thing about the Fed put, even if the Fed does reduce their taper, they've still, I mean, it's still a very accommodative Fed, right? Rates are you know zero ish, and they're still buying some, even if they reduce the taper and in March. It's still a very accommodative thread. It's not, I don't see you know huge hikes in us getting back to two or two and a half in the near term. So we're just so used to zero financing that now it seems like, oh, if we take that away, <laughs> wow, this is terrible. I don't know that it needs to be terrible, but people are going to flip out.
1: Yeah, but well, we're going to find out in the morning uh, for more in the meantime about how tomorrow's print <laughs> might impact the Fed. Let's bring in Steve Leisman. Uh, Steve, I assume you've been listening co- to our conversation. What, what are your thoughts going into the morning?
6: Yeah, I want to know why Guy said, if we make it to January, is something going to happen? I was, I was, uh, I was worried about that comment. <laughs> nah. I think we're going to make it to January, Guy. I wouldn't worry about that. Um, so that's the first thing. Look, uh, this is going to be a bad number. Um, and, and I will say this, be very careful, because um, e- economists do not have a very good feel for really predicting this economy. Last month, uh, the uh, print was double the expectation on the headline. Zero 3 was predicted, came in at zero 6 um, I think whoever said maybe it was Guy that if we, we may have a seven handle on this would not be out of the ordinary. And the problem here is not who, somebody else said that it's baked in. I think that's right. The, the risk is what's not baked in here, that you have a wave of two things could possibly be happening, maybe even three. The first one is a wave of additional housing inflation can come through. The housing costs that are out there, not in the CPI. It looks like they're rising faster than those within the CPI. You also have another wild card when it comes to the used car uh, prices, and the auction rates have been pretty strong there. Um, the other thing that's not necessarily reflected in there is wage inflation. Those are going up. You look at 11 million job openings, it tells me we have not reached equilibrium on wages yet. Um, we still have some adjustment to do. And once we adjust the wages, for the rank and file workers, there may be another wave of inflation that comes from hey, the managers turn around and say, well, if that guy's making this, I ought to be making that. So that, that's another wave of inflation. There's more to come. I think that is what is behind what Tim was talking about. I guess I did listen to all of it. Um, this idea that um, uh, the, the Fed is 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 going to be much more uh, hawkish when it comes to inflation right now. And they're going to position themselves essentially to uh, to respond to this. That's why they get the taper done early. And that's why they're talking openly about two, possibly three rate hikes. If you look at the probabilities there, we've got two pretty well priced in, three pretty well priced in for next year. And I, I think Karen's right that if that's it, it's not that bad. You talk about a 75 or 80 base point Fed funds rate next year, not the end of the world. The the, the risk or the threat here is do they have to do more than is priced into the market? Steve, I hate to play the hypothetical game, but, you know, we see
2: short squeezes and everything we do. You know, traders buying the top because they can't stand it anymore. And something happened, I think, with Jerome Powell. He said, you know, they're going to retire the word transitory, which is fine. But here's my question to you. If that number tomorrow comes in really... Uh, soft, let's say, you know, low sixes, high fives. The first question he's probably going to get to the extent that there's a Q&A is, did you retire transitory too quickly? How does he respond to something
6: like that? I think he responds to it by saying, I look around at the risks out there and The the idea of risk management is a tried and true and traditional way for the Federal Reserve to run policy. And I look at the risks out there and I say, the risks are to the economy are to higher inflation. Look, this is, you guys should step back and I think appreciate the uniqueness of the situation we're in. We not only have high inflation, we have good growth. And we have good earnings growth and exceptional profit margins out there when you look at uh, profits as a percent of total GDP, were at all-time highs. I, I'll throw a question back at the group here, Carl. If you knew six months ago or a year ago that inflation today was going to be 7%, how would you be positioned and made money any differently? You would say, I would think, that you, somehow you'd get out of the stock market, you'd short the whole bond <laughs> complex. I think it's a unique situation of strong growth, strong earnings growth, and... Um, And high inflation. So it's not that inflation is the only economic story out there. You have to deal with the other side of the balance sheet, which has been pretty good for companies right now.
1: Steve, I wonder, you know, this jobless claims number uh, this morning was remarkable, uh, 52-year low. uh, Stock market a couple percent from record highs. uh, GDP, Atlanta Fed's looking at 8, 8, 9 percent for Q4. Does anyone at the Fed think... Current policy is ridiculous. We would change it today if we could, but we have to soften the market in order to do so.
6: Yeah, Jake Powell thinks that. And whoever said <laughs> uh, you know that the first word out of his mind out of his mouth was inflation? Um, I think a lot of folks have come to the conclusion that uh, this economy does not need this kind of uh, uh, stimulus at least through June. Um, and the only reason I think they're still doing it, is to give the markets time to adjust. I think if they had their druthers, I know a bunch of them that would get rid of it right away. And they're just trying to follow through on their promise to markets to be transparent and to move all this stuff gradually. What they're doing now and what and this turnabout, which by the way came from. The November inflation report, which said two things. It was higher than they thought it was going to be, and it was more widespread. That's really the key. I'm going to look at this number tomorrow. I'm going to look at the diffusion of gains out there. Is this an aggregate price or are these just a couple things? If it's just a couple things, I think the Fed would be chill and say it's transitory. It's going to run off. But if it's widespread, that's going to be a really important aspect tomorrow. And that's why I think ultimately uh, uh, they're going to they're going to be more hawkish. Move to those rate hikes. Try to do it gradually. Uh, but they're going to get there.
1: Yeah. We'll find out in the morning, Steve. Uh, that's a great discussion. Thanks, uh, Steve Leisman. What does a faster Pleasure. taper and higher rates mean for corporate bondholders? Let's find out. Trade schools in session. Let's bring in BondLink CEO Chris White. Chris, let's talk about what kind of impact this might have on the corporate bond market. Well,
0: thanks for having me on. I think that that's actually something that the Fed is going to have to seriously consider when they talk about implementing their policies For raising rates. They've already started tapering when it comes to direct bond purchases. They stopped buying corporate bonds and actually sold their positions out in 2021. And they've really tapered when it comes to buying treasury bonds and mortgage bonds. And what this effectively does is it starts to change the value of corporate securities in the marketplace as people anticipate that the real interest rate environment is going to be higher and therefore current corporate bond holdings lose a lot of their value because they're paying such low yields
3: it's Karen, let me ask you something. If we get a really hot number tomorrow, do you think the curve will flatten more or possibly invert or do you think the whole curve will move up, the slope will stay the same? How do you think this plays out if we get a hot number?
0: I, I, look, I think that anytime we talk about moves that are happening in the marketplace and we're in like close to mid-December... I think everybody needs to relax in terms of what it means for the, the broader future of the marketplace. Things get very, very choppy in December because traders are on vacation. People are trying to book profits in this calendar year so they can get paid. So I wouldn't overreact to any moves that happen on the yield curve um, coming in the next few days. What I would look for is in the beginning of Q1, what's the trading activity? Are you seeing a lot of movement out of longer dated maturities into shorter dated maturities, which would really steepen the yield curve? Because that would be an affirmation that people think that rates are going to be raised possibly pretty aggressively. And they want to make sure that they've got powder dry so that they're going to be able to buy those bonds that have juicier yields in the future.
4: Hey, Chris, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to change gears a little bit because you're also a credit guy. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we had high yield spreads at, at you know, nine to 12 month highs uh, or wides, I should say. And while I don't think we're anywhere near a credit problem right now, ultimately, we also talked about scenarios from two years ago. Guy brought up the, the Fed policy and whatnot. Two years ago, we were talking about that large kind of tranche of triple B minus that was you know on the edge. At what point? Uh, do you see credit becoming an issue? And and did you see any of that weakness, at least in some of the uh, lower grade stuff, a couple of weeks ago?
0: Well, we've we've had a year where where junk bonds have had a tremendous have had a tremendous year in two thousand and twenty one. Um, with yep. tons of issuance and also they've just improved in value. So if you see a little pullback, that's, that's only natural here. We've seen double B spreads that uh, at levels that we've never seen before. But actually, your question's a great one because the, the, the Fed is in a really precarious position here because something we're not talking about is the wall of debt that is maturing from not only U.S. corporations, but there's about $72 billion in emerging market debt that's maturing in 2022. If the overall global interest rate environment raises or or rises too quickly, a lot of these junk bond corporations that have or junk bond emerging market institutions that need to uh, retire their debt in 2022, they may not be able to refinance at favorable interest rates, which could start uh, to raise the default rates. How this impacts the U.S. markets is what we've seen is in this sort of, Area where yields have been really hard to, to capture for asset managers and pension funds, they've had to buy uh, emerging market debt in order to sort of hit their yield bogies or their performance bogies in fixed income. Yeah. And, and you all, all remember like what started to happen when uh, Chinese real estate companies started defaulting. We're finding out that lots of American asset managers uh, had significant positions. So these are the things that the, the Fed has to consider. It's not just what's going to happen in the domestic markets. They've got to really think about just how uh, broad investing activity has gone outside of the United States and how their interest rate policies are going to impact uh, those companies as well.
1: Yeah, no, definitely throwing a very large rock into the pond. Uh, There'll be a lot of ripples. Chris, thank you. That was great. I appreciate that very much. Let's trade this, uh, Dan. I mean, what are your thoughts coming out of that when you think about new issuance? have, Have corporates assembled enough dry powder for now or will they sense the window closing?
5: Yeah no I think that's a great point I mean corporate balance sheets are obviously in a really good spot here but you know I'll just say this Carl you're new around here I'm easily the dumbest guy on this panel <laughs> on any given night but I'll just tell you this man you know Steve Leesman categorized the economy is rocking and rolling um, but listen we threw like five trillion dollars at this pandemic right And so why are those balance sheets the way they are both business and consumer if you look at GDP expectations for next year when I hear about margins Corporate margins where they are they seem like it's a peak sort of scenario especially when expectations for rates are higher and all that debt that we had- um, that we have right now I don't think rates are ever going meaningfully higher but I also think growth is going to disappoint next year- Um, if you think about Goldman Sachs just lowered their twenty twenty two GDP growth below four percent you know what we're averaging pre pandemic after the financial crisis about two point two percent in Q3 and Q4 they're expecting GDP to have a two hand That's where we're going back and we are choking on debt both corporate and sovereign. So I just think growth is going to disappoint and I just think it's going to be a tough environment for stocks when you consider the performance that we have had over the last two years and how much capital it took from both the Fed and obviously the Treasury and Congress just to get here
1: right. That's going to be a longer, uh, harder question to answer, uh, Dan, for sure. Coming up tonight, uh, we're all over the after-hours action in some earnings: uh, Oracle, Broadcom, Lulu, all on the move after reporting. We'll get details coming up. First, the digital bank startup backed by Berkshire going public today. We'll dive into how NewBank fared in its first day of trading. There's a lot more fast money after this.
7: What does it mean to be rich?
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. Brazilian fintech company Nubank making a blockbuster debut today. Shares of the Buffett-backed digital banking company jumped nearly 15% from the IPO price. Let's get to Kate Rooney for some details. Hey, Kate.
8: Hey, Carl. Nubank seen that double-digit pop on its IPO day. Shares of the Brazilian fintech closing above $10 in its first day of trading after pricing at 9 bucks, That was at the high end of its expected range. It's trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker NU, NU. And New Bank made its name as the most valuable private Latin American tech company in what's known as a challenger bank. It's now valued at more than Brazil's largest incumbent bank. And this was a big milestone for the growing cohort of startups in Latin America. The company is led by CEO David Velez, and he and Nubank really have been the gold standard of how to build a high-growth tech company there and attract high-profile investors. NewBank's pre-IPO backers include Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. You've got Sequoia, Tiger Global, and Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. And there have been a flood of investors and capital to the region. So far this year, Latin American startups have brought in just under $15 billion in VC funding. That's a threefold increase just from a year ago, according to to CB Insights. But in public markets, some of New Bank's public comparisons have struggled lately. Take a look at Deedlocal. That was a hot fintech IPO this year. Mercado Libre, Stone, another big one, all in the red this year. Stone is down almost 80%. And a tough few months for some of the flagship U.S. fintechs as well. Square and PayPal are also both negative for the year after big years in 2020. Investors have been rotating away from growth lately, as you guys know, but those stocks also negative on the year. Carl, back to you.
1: All right, fascinating debut, Kate. Okay, thank you, R.K. Rooney. Uh, Tim, what do you think? Let's trade it. Is, it, is this a, a Brazil play or a fintech? Is fintech universal anywhere at any country?
4: Well, it's the right question to ask. It's also the right question to ask, and the right IPO to talk about it on a day when the Brazilian Central Bank raised rates 150 bips and is well ahead of the Fed and has raised rates 700 basis points in the last seven or eight months because of endemic inflation and a concern, and look, a banking system that historically has, has been on the brink. And so while Nubank has a bigger market cap than Banco Itaú or Bradesco or the, you know, the, the, the juggernauts down there, it, this is a bank that really has already moved ahead of so many banks, not only in Latin America, but around the world. And again, David Velez understands the dynamic. And by the way, this is, this is a financial institution. This isn't just a tech story, and this just isn't fintech. And I mean, these are, these are, this is giving folks their first access to credit cards, their first access to bank accounts. Uh, in the EM world, this is a story of leapfrogging both technology and, and immediately arriving into a place where I think this platform will be very sticky for a lot of other uh, fundamental banking endeavors, but also, yes, very disruptive tech uh, and digital access and etc. I, I think this is absolutely a global play. And this is a financial play. Because again, in EM, so many people are underbanked. And, and these guys moved a lot faster than the incumbents. It's, a, it's an exciting day.
1: Interesting. Yeah, certainly an outlier, uh, given today's price action. Look at that screen right there. Uh, the only one in the green. Uh, we're start, just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next.
0: The earnings keep rolling in. We're all
2: over the after-hours action in some big names. The details are next. Plus, a crushing day for crypto as the big coins head south. So what's next for the space? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
9: People today can spend half their lives over 50. Welcome back to Fast Money. Got an
1: earnings alert for you on Oracle. Shares are higher by about 10%. Conference call underway. Let's get to our Julia Borston. Hey, Julia.
10: Well, Carl, Oracle shares shooting higher and better than expected top and bottom line results. The company's biggest division, Cloud Services, grew 6%, and the company authorized a $10 billion increase in share repurchases. Now, what's sending the stock even higher? You see that leg up during the earnings call. CEO Safra Katz saying that revenue growth will accelerate. She guided to six to eight percent fiscal third quarter revenue growth in common currency. And she said that full year revenue will finish solidly in the mid Single digits. Now, CATS saying that cloud bookings growing faster than the cloud revenue growth rate, and as a result, they expect cloud revenue will accelerate further and exit the fiscal year in the mid twenty percent range, potentially higher. She did note that cloud is a more profitable profitable business than their on-premise business, and that their margins will be better than pre-pandemic levels. Larry Ellison, bullish as well, he pointed to the particular strength of Oracle's autonomous database and also their MySQL database divisions, saying, quote, because of their extreme high performance, both products present huge growth opportunities for cloud infrastructure businesses. So some, uh, some positive commentary about the third fiscal third quarter and looking into next year is what is sending that stock up now over 10 percent, guys.
1: All right. Thank you very much, uh, Julia Borston. Let's trade it. Guy, what do you think, especially in light of what's happened to enterprise software names in the last three weeks? Guess who's now a cloud growth
2: company? Yes, (laughs) you guessed it, Oracle. I mean, 47% operating margins. (laughs) Now, it looks like Fusion ERP, 8,500 customers, revenue growing 35%. NetSuite, 28,400 companies, uh, customers, revenue growing 30%. It trades at a pretty much a market multiple, maybe a little bit north of that, with growth that is just off the charts. This stock should be north of 100 bucks off the back of this earnings release. And I can almost categorically guarantee that analysts who have been behind the curve on this are going to raise their numbers over the next couple of weeks.
1: We will find out. Uh, meantime, Broadcom, guys, uh, surging after its report. That call is also underway. Our Josh Lipton has those details. Hey, Josh.
11: So remember heading into this report, Broadcom was already up about 30% this year. It was trading right around its all-time high. Now reporting Q4 results here. Beat on the bottom, revenue $7.41 billion versus $7.36 billion expected. Q1 revenue forecast, about $7.6 billion versus $7.3 billion expected. Bernstein's Stacey Razgon telling me this was a solid beat, a sizable guide up. Gross margins good. Good dividend raise in the company announcing that $10 billion buyback. There is nothing here not to like Stacy says. His rating outperformed attractively valued, better control over the semi-business than rivals, a less volatile software business, the highest margins and free cash flow in the space, space Stacy tells me. On the call, CEO Haktan saying enterprise demand rebounded sharply. As for wireless, strong wireless growth driven by the launch of next-gen phones by his North American customer, and by that he means Apple. Turning to software, growing 8% year over year, reflecting that strong enterprise recovery. We are well-positioned, Haktan saying every franchise market. Back to you guys.
1: All right, Josh. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Uh, Josh Lipton. Let's trade Broadcom. Uh, Dan, can you find any hair on this print?
5: No, there's no hair on it. You know, another $10 billion buyback here. We just saw Oracle uh, name that same number. And, you know, again, here's a stock that's trading below a market multiple. I think the problem that you have here, Carl, is that the stock has rallied 23% in a straight line in just about two months. I mean, when this stock was consolidating down near 500 in mid-October, you know, you could say that ah, was cheaper then. If you had an optimistic outlook about maybe just dealing with supply chains better, um, that was the time to buy it. I just don't know how you chase it up here at an all-time high with this news out. I would say one thing to extrapolate, a lot of people have been scratching their head. Why has Apple been so strong of late? Well, they're a 20% customer of uh, Broadcom here, so this is obviously good for Apple here. you know, Again, you draw a line for the March lows, you see a nice uptrend there. There's a place to reload on this name. It's probably not here at $620. Hey,
1: Tim, I'm, re- I'm watching your re- reaction off-, off camera. What do you think? Is it too late? <laughs>
4: Yeah. <laughs> Dan, I wasn't shaking my head at you.
1: Um, No, look,
4: Dan Dan makes great points about the the move the stock has, and he also made points that the stock um, didn't do anything wrong and and that the valuation, you know, 18, 19 times, um, very cheap, again, as Dan pointed out. I I just think sweet spot of of data center networking. Um, They, like Marvell, proved that they're they're less susceptible to supply dynamics. Um, I think they can kind of do what they want here. And, yes, they are goosing the stock by buying back and increasing the dividend. So I, I think that gives you reason to stay in this name. Secular tailwinds for these guys, by the way. I mean, I think they actually have trailed some of the move in the big data center plays, and I think you stay with these as some of those get a little bit more
1: competitive. All right. Last but not least tonight, Lululemon uh, shares are losing their earlier gains and have gone negative. Courtney Reagan's all over that one. Hey, Court. Hi,
7: Carl. Yeah, the uh, conference call still ongoing, but wrapping up here. Lululemon turning in a stronger than expected uh, earnings and revenue number for its fiscal third quarter full year, earnings guidance a little light, revenue in line. The CFO notes that the company did raise guidance even with more conservative revenue expectations for its mirror business and increased costs for air freight. They also note that while there are several large volume weeks ahead of us, we still feel well positioned for a strong end to 2021. Revenue grew 28% North America, 40% internationally, calling out China specifically strength. Total comparable sales growth of 27%. Store comparable sales grew 32%. And when you're looking at the portion of online versus in-store, online sales ended up making up 40% of total sales for the quarter. Lululemon's gross margin did improve 110 basis points to 57.2%. And the CFO noted that markdowns declined when compared to 2019. Shares are down here just about 2% after hours, still up about 20% year-to-date, but fairly rich valuation on this one. Carl, back over to you. Uh, yeah, thanks, Courtney. A
1: lot of cross-currents in this one, Karen. You got the dispute with Peloton over Mirror. Of course, a lot of back backdrop of, are we going to need new clothes to go to work or not? What do you think? Let's trade it.
3: So, I mean, there's a lot to like in the report. The gross margin, as point, Courtney pointed out, that was good. So less promotional or a better mix or some of both. Um, The full year guidance, a little light, particularly since this quarter was fine and yet the guidance didn't go up by as much as this quarter beat. So that made a little light, but they might just be sort of lowballing. All that being said, though, you know, at 55 times and just trading at a less than 2 percent free cash flow yield, they're priced in for, for perfection and they've delivered it. But what if they don't? So it's too rich for me. It's obviously a great company. I wouldn't short it. It deserves to have a premium multiple. Whether it deserves to have more than a 2x the market multiple, that's too rich for me. So uh, love the company, but can't own the stock at this price. Guy, you in the same boat.
2: Love their products. I won't get into great detail, but I think Karen's <laughs> spot on. You're looking for an entry point here. You're not shorting it, but you're looking for a place to buy it. And I think that comes in the form of the October 21st low, which, if memory serves, was 385. That's where you get into the name.
1: All right, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Right now, 4.0750 after the bell. Uh, Coming up, uh, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, weighing in on Twitter today, calling the social stock a sleeper. Is this stock's performance a dream or a nightmare? We're going to dig into that trade in just a few. Plus, the crypto carnage, the major tokens take a leg lower. We're going to break down the moves in the space. Don't go anywhere. Fast money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin lost some steam today. The cryptocurrency dropping more than 5%, Ether down nearly 55 The two biggest crypto assets now on pace to end the week lower, despite making a slight recovery from that wreck over the weekend. Bitcoin is now more than 30% off the all-time highs hit in early November. Tim, on Saturday morning, that number was closer to 40. How much do you think is being flushed out here in a good way? Well,
4: if you look at the the drawdowns in Bitcoin over the last couple of years, uh, 30 to 35 to 40 percent is almost garden variety, certainly going back over time. If you look at the chart and you could draw an uptrend um, going back a couple of years, you could say, you know, down to 41,000, um, not bad. And, and I, I think look, the, the the conversation around Bitcoin is really now more of a conversation of a, about it being uh, called the, the proxy play for the blockchain uh, you know, and the dynamic around blockchain that nobody is questioning. And certainly some of the financial institutions that we'd be talking to talking about, I'm sure they'll tell you that they expect to be doing uh, a lot of their settlements and ops are all going to be blockchain related. Settlement will be blockchain. So, I, you know, Bitcoin as the proxy, not as a surprise to the extent that we're also having a Fed-heavy discussion and concerns about inflation and, and less liquidity, uh, I think this has to affect the price of Bitcoin and, again, the people that trade it. So um, not terribly totally alarmed, and I bet you know, most people holding Bitcoin not terribly alarmed.
1: Yeah. Dan, we, we, uh, the technicians, of course, have long said uh, the charts have not been stellar uh, going into this last quarter of the year, and we've seen a lot of year-end 100K targets go to waste.
5: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Carter Braxton Worth had a note out yesterday talking about the relationship between Bitcoin and Ethereum and very bullish on Ethereum. He thinks that it's setting up for a really nice breakout. The relative outperformance this year is pretty staggering with ETH up about 450% versus Bitcoin only up about 65%. You see ETH consolidating here if it can kind of keep it together a little bit. I think what Tim was kind of alluding to is that a lot of the really interesting stuff in crypto related, blockchain related stuff is going on with smart contracts right now, whether it be Ethereum or Solana. And right now Ethereum is about 55% of the market cap Of Bitcoin. And so I think there's a lot of people who are thinking about NFTs. They're thinking about ways to unlock Web3, creator economy stuff, DeFi. And that's all built on Ethereum or a smart contract blockchain like Solana. So to me, I find Ethereum very interesting. I like to have pullbacks on it because I like to buy more. I have a longer term outlook. I'm not really trading it. I don't really think of Bitcoin that way because, to me, it really feels like that digital store of value, digital gold. And I was never a buyer of the gold like Gaia <laughs> uh,
1: We're going to talk about uh, <laughs> Kathy Wood in a few minutes, Karen. But she did say this morning on Squawk that she that if big institutional money came into Bitcoin over the long term, it could add half a million dollars to its value.
3: To each, to each share, to each coin, rather. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a lot. That's clearly a lot of value. That would be up, you know, <laughs> eleven times from here. I, I'm not sure where that comes from. I mean, I, I'm a believer in that in digital currency. I'm a believer in Bitcoin. I'm a believer in the idea that you know fiat currencies, if we just keep printing money, that can end up being problematic. And the institutional adoption uh, and needing to have crypto exposure, as I do. Uh, But as Tim said, this is sort of a garden variety pullback. I don't know where that half a million, I hope to God she's right. That would be pretty amazing. But uh, I don't think it needs to go there for a lot of people to make a lot of money. Yeah,
1: that's for sure. Uh, Speaking of which, coming up, Kathy Wood uh, betting the Twitter stock is going to fly. Are the traders buying that pitch? We're going to find out next. And CVS had a new high today as it says sales will accelerate in the new year. That has some options traders piling in. We're going to tell you how they're trading the name when Fast Money returns.
8: There is a sleeper in, in Twitter that we think most uh, people don't understand. What we're seeing is that that this platform, which used to be dominated by tweens, teens, and celebrities in uh, 2012 when we first evolved our research ecosystem, has now evolved to knowledge workers, and uh, we found it, we find it essential at Arc to engage with the communities we are researching, and actually to become a part of those communities. This is a very powerful social network
1: At Sark Invest, Kathy Wood speaking to Squawk Box this morning about why her flagship innovation fund picked up shares of Twitter. You can check out that full interview online at CNBC.com pro. Twitter rising as much as five and a half percent today. But if the stock's a sleeper, it's having a nightmare down nearly 15 percent for the year. Now without its longtime CEO, Jack Dorsey. Dan, what do you think? Is she right? Is the stock about to pick up?
5: Well, she's right about the fact, the importance of the platform, and we're all power users, so we recognize that, and I think, you know, we've all been very constructive on the story, but the stock has been really hard. I was very disappointed when I saw the news, Um, you know, I don't think anyone was disappointed that Jack left. I think it was probably time, Um, but their choice for the new CEO, I think, is disappointing when you consider their inability to come up with good technology to better monetize Mm -hmm. and grow their user base. That's it. That's the problem. So I don't know why you would promote the CTO to be the CEO of this company. So I'm no longer in the name. I think we're going to see lower lows. I think we'll see the stock below 40. She could be right if there's another evolution of this company, but they have been unable. I think they call it daily monetizable active users. I mean, they are on this 200 million bound, and I just don't realize. I don't really see how they're going to be able to better monetize it. We've seen a lot of new products this year. They've uh, you know, got rid of some that haven't worked, fleets and this and that or whatever. Let's see super follows. Let's see spaces. There's some interesting stuff, but I don't see them getting to a half a billion users based on those
1: products. Yeah, those long range targets are sort of what even the bulls, Tim, say is at risk. And they also point out, you know, engineering fixes aren't something that get get solved or show their worth in the quarter or two.
4: Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, it was just that Investor Day back in February, not that long ago. They said they're going to double revenues in three years to three point seven to seven and a half billion. That they're going to get to three hundred and fifty three hundred and fifteen million DAUs. I, I I think there's a credibility problem from management. I, I mean, they've said a lot of things over the years and and never hit them. I mean, and, and yet going into that Investor Day, the stock almost doubled. So um, I I think there's a lot of investors that really bought into that, and I think the re-rating that went on was a mirage, and I think they need to prove it.
1: Guy, you know, they've been through sort of the, the um, kissing machine regarding speculation of a takeover, whether it's Microsoft or uh, Salesforce. It's, we've all heard these, uh, these uh, scenarios being spun. But do you think there's a, there's a, a likelihood that someone takes another, a fresh look at it, given sort of the societal liabilities you'd have to put up with with owning this thing?
2: I've never been in one of those machines, so it's hard for me to comment on that. I think the answer to that question is absolutely (laughs) yes. I think it's too valuable an asset in this environment. And, you know, Tim just mentioned the $7.5 billion. I think they'll get there by 2023. And if you start doing the math at current prices, they're trading about five and a half times revenue, which given if you look at it against their peers, is sort of cheap. So I'm with Kathy Wood on this one. I think JP Morgan just came out and said they could see the stock doubling. And I think your point about M&A... I think that's sort of the cherry on top. So I actually like the name here. I'm in the Kathy Wood camp. I'm not in the
1: kissing booth or whatever you just mentioned All right, before. I'll, 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 good luck on that. Uh, st- still to come, we're going to check in on CVS options next. How one trader's betting today's gains may just be the start of where things are headed. Those details are next. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. We're back after this. Welcome back, here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Formel. you can catch that full exclusive tomorrow. I'm sorry, at the top of it, Mad Money in the next hour. Don't forget, you can have Kramer delivered right into your inbox with the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now with all the info on your screen, including the QR code. Meantime, check out CVS jumping more than 4% to a brand new record today. Company announces it expects sales to accelerate as it rolls out new services in the new year. Over in the options pits, traders are betting that'll translate into even more gains for the stock. Mike Coe joins us now to break down the action. Hey, Mike.
2: Hi there, Carl. Yeah, So, CVS traded more than 5.5 times its average daily call volume. Traders obviously making a lot of bullish bets coming out of the news that the company was offering there. The most active options were the weekly 100 strike calls. We saw over 11,000 of those trading for about 11 cents. That's a very cheap option, obviously about 0.1% of the current stock price. But what people are doing there is making cheap bets. The big move we saw today might continue tomorrow. And if it did, those would be a 10-bit bagger. But I will tell you, it's probably a low likelihood that we're going to see moves that big. But we can see what they're betting on.
1: All right, Mike, thank you very much for that. Karen, another big buyback from those guys this morning. Uh, although all retailers are sort of struggling with this new era of uh, organized theft, and a lot of them are starting to lean on Congress to uh, help them fight back on these marketplaces where you can sell stolen goods.
3: Yeah, that w- that's that been a problem for uh, We've seen it now from Target. We've seen it. I forget there was another one uh, last week. I don't know how we're going to solve, but, you know, that will obviously – Way on margins if some amount of your inventory you get zero for so I mean however they seem to have a great handle on their business and Karen Lynch seemed very excited about you know she is closing 900 stores so they are could be able to be more efficient and she thinks without really losing um, any revenue so that would obviously be a good thing also they're focusing more on uh, primary care and you know she came from Aetna so she knows obviously that side of the business well all that having been said, at 12 and a half times earnings, actually a little bit cheaper than that. I want to own low PE stocks, and I think this one's got momentum. And with the buyback, the dividend, they'll raise it a little. It's two percent now. I like the story. So, also, last thing, 97 and change. There's a gravitational pull towards 100. All right. Yeah, people, people like round
1: numbers. Uh, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show tomorrow at 5:30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, your final trades. Let's go around the horn. Tim.
3: Thanks, Carl. CarMax. Karen. CBS. Thanks for being here, Carl. All right. Dan.
5: Yeah, yeah. Visa. Growth at a reasonable price.
3: And Guy. McDonald's, Q.
1: <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Uh, Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Starts right now.